Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain a leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. I want us to talk a little bit about your journey in, in ministry, because you went from Sherman Oaks to Belize, and now you're in a pastoring church in Austin, Texas. You've become a, an author, three books and a fourth on the way, that I find personally difficult to read. Difficult in two ways. One, they tear my heart out in a really good way. And difficult in the other way is you're an intellectual, and you don't hide it. And I know that you've got some things coming up, it looks like, in Oxford, in England, as a result of all that. You are in a really unique position to speak into, because when you and I talk about it, it's really always comes back down to listening to each other and friendship and love. And so many people are trying to address the problem systematic, and it really has to be done, I think, relationally. We'll get into that. I want to hear whatever you, you want to share with us, and, and I really want to make sure we hear a little bit about your books, because there's some people who really need to read those books and read your heart. Talk to us about Belize. You know, there was a kind of, kind of a hiccup on the way into Belize, and then just what moved you to where you are today? There was a person uh, named Roy Hicks Jr. He became the director of missions for the denomination. Roy was a, a great guy, a facilitator, kind of a high energy guy. And so I'm sitting in my office in Chairman Oaks. We'd been there maybe four years. And I get a call. Zach Nazarian has given your name to Roy Hicks as, uh, as a possible missionary to uh, the country of Please, would you be interested in speaking with him? So I said, yes, I'll entertain a phone call. Roy calls and we talk. We talk some more. We talk at length. And he says, well, okay, I'd like to come out and meet you. So I gave him the address of the office on Van Nuys Boulevard. Two or three weeks later, he and a guy named Gareth Selkin show up. And my office door opens and I can see them walk in. They pass and that. And then I noticed Roy's countenance was a little... Um, a little different. And I said, what's going on? He goes, Jimmy, you know, as long as we spoke on the phone, it never occurred to me that you were black. (laughs) I said, well, does that make a difference? He goes, no, but I just, he says, you surprised the heck out of me. So then he goes, then he caught himself because at the time, Belize, the racial makeup at the time was 60% Creole, people who look like me, African with some other mixture, and Latin. So numerically, there were more Creoles at the time we left than there were any other racial grouping. And so Roy thought, I already knew that, and he wanted to make sure that I understood. He goes, now, I don't want you to think, <laughs> I don't want you to think that we wanted to send you there because... And he says, I didn't know. (laughs) You know, it's like one of those kind of things where you you do something and you you compound the mistake because you didn't do it on purpose and you you want to compensate. And Royce, it was great. And we, we became very fast friends because of that. That the way we started, you know. Well, speaking, so, uh, speaking as someone who has a lot of experience as a white person, <laughs> uh, you, there's that tendency of, oh my gosh, 
I might have said something stupid here, and I don't want yeah, to offend yeah. this person. Uh, I've been there, done that way more than I wish I would have. That's good. <laughs> you ended up talking to the intellectuals and Billy's. That was your your congregation. You didn't reach the crew. Well, the, as it turned out, it didn't it didn't work out that way. We, we went, and at the time, the thinking was to take four to six six months and don't do too much look around and get settled into the culture so you don't make a lot of mistakes cultural mistakes don't make assumptions and that was the literature i was reading and one problem we had was i, I ran into a guy who was a foursquare guy from modesto who's a belizean he had read some uh, communique that i was there and he'd been looking for me one day we're walking back from the post office and i could sense Somebody was following me. And I thought, oh, what's going on here? You know, I, I promised Mr. Brown that I'm going to take care of his daughter. And I got this guy. So I, I altered the route because I don't want them to follow us home. I don't want them to know where they where we live. So we take a couple of zigzag maneuvers. And then I thought, okay, this is really, this is on. We're about to have trouble. So I told you, Lane, you, know, you walk ahead and go home and I'm going to stop to have a discussion with, <laughs> with this person. So she takes a few steps up and I turn around and I go, can I help you? Basically. And he goes, well, are you Jimmy? I go, yeah. He goes, well, I'm Dale Holtz. And I, I found out. So he's, he came over to the house. He's a guitar player. In fact, he's, I think he's involved with the church there now. Though. But he came over and our, our things hadn't arrived in Belize City as yet. And I said, well, when they come, I'm going to rent this hotel uh, auditorium, banquet room, and try out the stuff to make sure that everything works. Well, he didn't hear that we wanted to try out the stuff. He went and told everybody we're going to be playing there. <laughs> so we, we go down there, and there's a group all waiting for us to come. And so we had a service, and we didn't plan to have a service. That wasn't the plan. I wanted to start in the living room. I wanted to get people to understand why we were there, what we wanted to do, and make sure I had 10 or 12 people who were on board, the full buy-in. And I just didn't want anybody to come just to hear me play or to hear me talk. I'm full buy-in because Foursquare didn't want us to go down and just start a church. They wanted us to start churches and start another church. And in order to do that, we needed people not in the way I was. So as time went on, I started meeting more people and the people I was meeting one by one, it turned out to be the prime minister <laughs> and it would turn out to be, you know, uh, we lived, the place we rented was, we rented from James Blake. Well, at one time he was the, the richest person in the country. He owned the first car there and his daughter and uh, her son, they became some of our first attenders and they introduced us to other people, they introduced us to other people. So before I know it, we had a pretty affluent congregation. It was unintended. It's not what we went to do. Or wasn't I planned to do, but I planned to, to minister to whoever was sent. I, I didn't think it was on me to shoo them away just because it was a good Polynesian term, just because they weren't, quote, my target audience. So we were there, I mean, two or three years meeting in a YMCA. I had this guy, Landy, who was Maya. I'd go out to run every morning, for lack of a better, he was cutting grass all in the neighborhood. So I'd see him every morning when I go into various houses and I'd speak to him. And so one day I go, What's your name? He goes, Landy. Well, I thought he said Jimmy. So I started calling him Jimmy. I said, yeah, mine too. Yeah. Eventually, we become friends. He comes over, and he's uneducated. He's Maya. He had no schooling, but he's visionary, and he's entrepreneurial. I, I come to find out that he not only that was his business, aside of one of two other businesses, and 
then he says, I want to become a pastor. So I started having him come over to my house on Thursday nights and I take him through some books. Then he goes, well, you know, we need to move from Belize City. And we would start the church there. We could have a training center. We could do all these things. I introduced him to the guy above me and said, listen, this guy, listen to what he wants to do. And they go, oh, no, we can't do that. Well, they turned him down. Six years later, that's pretty much what's going on. It's just, it shows sometimes you can't see what you can't see was a whole. I guess the Bridging Austin and Vision, it's really a Hope Chapel granddaughter church. Well, uh, let's see. We left Belize in uh, 2001, I believe. I came back to the States, not the same person that I was when I left, as far as how I saw uh, racial relationships. In Belize, I was a Creole, which meant that I was a person of African descent with any other mixture. Any, It didn't matter whether it was Maya, white, Asian. It, once you mix those two, you became a Creole. So they didn't designate or qualify people in terms of black and white. There were shades and degrees and various ways of approaching. And I came back to America where it's very defined. You're, you're one thing. You're a black person. And black could mean if, if you just got off the plane from Nairobi and walked into a uh, 7-Eleven, that person would just think you were a black person. That was not what I was used to. So we started a church in Delray Beach. We call it Hope Chapel Delray Beach. And we had about 30 people in the living room. One night, I hear a commotion on the front porch. And I go out and two of the people, two of the attenders were arguing about somebody that was on TV, a preacher on TV, their theology. They were getting quite heated. And I closed the door and I came and I told Julian, I can't do this. I, 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 can't, I can't, I don't want to start a church full of people who are that thin skinned about theology, racial issues. So we, we shut it down. And I took a job at a, uh, a Baptist church in Boca Raton. I told him, I'll give you six months. I'll do your small groups for you and music. Well, about three months into that, uh, one of the people there says, well, I talk to you a lot. You sound like this guy, Brian McLaren, and I think you should meet him. So Brian had become the titular head of something called the uh, Emergent Church in, in the early O's. And I wound up going and working for Brian and working with Brian at uh, Cedar Ridge Community Church, which had been a Willow Creek church plant, but it was out reaching younger people, primarily people who voted Democrat, but were Christian. So that was my first experience of being in a, a church with, you know, 1,100 people and a thousand of them were died in the world Democrats. They saw the world from a, a democratic point of view. Part of my job entails speaking. And one day I was to speak on the Sunday morning and I had a friend from Hope Chapel Hermosa who was living in Washington, D.C., who was working for this conservative group in Washington, and she was going to come attend the service. And another friend at the church worked for Sojourner, which was kind of a uh, environmentalist paper. And so I'm speaking, and I'm supposed to be speaking on this topic, and I look in the front rows, and there's a blonde woman to my right that I love dearly. And there's a blonde woman to my left that I love dearly. And I'm losing track of where I'm, what I'm supposed to be saying. Cause I'm thinking those, both of those women love me. But boy, if they knew the political <laughs> ideology of the other, we would have a major cat fight right now. Right then I had a light bulb moment. I went, okay, I have to find a way where I can identify and relate to people who are on opposite ends 
of the divides, which includes race. And I knew right then that that was, that was kind of a light bulb moment when I knew that's what you need to be doing. So I watched Brian write books and I said, okay, I need to write a book. So that out of that came Rhythm and Grace. So we moved back to Boca Raton. I wrote Rhythm and Grace and uh, we moved to Austin primarily to be in the middle of the country because there was, when you write a book, there's not a lot of support financially. You're just like all the um, promotions on your nickel. And so I thought, well, I can't live in Florida and fly around the country and, and promote the book. So let's get someplace where I can drive. So Rhythm and Grace comes out. When it came out, President Obama had just won the election. There was a feeling in the country at that time that his ascent to the presidency kind of signaled the culmination of the civil rights movement. All the country's racial problems were over and they were a thing in the past. And there's really no reason to talk about those things any longer because that's ancient history. It's done. And so the book kind of didn't do as well as maybe it should have. And right out of the gate, we didn't sell that well. So I thought, well, I better take a job. So I wound up working local to a large church and I took a job doing small group leaders. And then that bug hit where I need to be doing church. So we started bridging Austin as a reconciling community. We wanted that verbiage in, in the branding. We wanted people to know that we're in the business of reconciling. We wanted them to know that reconciling is hard work. We wanted them to know that when you reconcile things, sometimes you disagree, sometimes you argue. We had, we had tried to start an intercultural intergenerational church in Florida. And the way I set it up was I wanted it to be a church for young people. I wanted to be the, the lead pastor, but I wanted my job to be to facilitate them having church. And I would just be there as a guide or a mentor. So the way the services went, we would play music for 20, 25 minutes. And we wouldn't have a sermon per se. We would have one of the young people get up and share what their week was like. And then I would comment. And so one day, a young female was going to school maybe 25 minutes away. She went to a special school and the gay rights issue was real big. So she got up and shared what her week was like, that she felt uncomfortable because they know she's a Christian. And because she's a Christian, they assume she doesn't like gay people. And there are a lot of people at the school who are gay. They put two and two together and she was being ostracized. So we let her talk. And at the end of it, when I get up to sew everything together and to, you know, just to make comments and give them a scriptural position. I didn't address gay rights issues. I addressed what that tension, how that affected her and her schooling. And I thought that was a point to address the tension between people. And the mail I got that week, oh, the phone calls. What You, you had a golden opportunity to be scriptural and to do this and do that. And, and once again, I went, I can't do this. I'm trying to bring people together and they're finding ways to keep people apart. And they missed the point of even that Sunday. So we shut that one down. And then we moved. Once we did that, we said, we're out of here. So we decided to come to Austin. It's always been reconciliation with us. We had to figure out a way to bring people together. So we started a multi-ethnic church I found a building on, in East Austin, which was primarily Latino. We went in partnership with 
a Presbyterian guy and a white couple. And we were all going to be co-pastors, 70 people, very small building. Well, the white pastor, I had gone someplace and he decided he was going to do a dance for a demonstration for Tejana music. He used Tejana music and the Latino people in the church were offended because you don't mix secular Mexican music. And we had a big blow up. And I realized it's more than a juggling act to bring these ethnicities together. The stage has to be set where people understand that their attendance is by definition their mission. They're doing something for God by giving up their preferences and the way they see it for the good of somebody else. And so when that church ended, we decided, well, how else can we do it? We rented a space in the library of a large Presbyterian church, and we started meeting there. And uh, this, by a series of events, this lawyer shows up, and he's got a daughter who's special needs. He and I become friends, and I start meeting with his daughter, who's musical. And I go into this facility where it's called a dayhab, where it houses maybe 80 or 90 special needs people. And I start playing the guitar and I, they respond. Then I notice I look around and every time I go there, they don't have any friends. And I thought, okay, what should I, how can I change this? Well, I know I'll bring in a bunch of people and they'll become their friend. They have nobody to visit them except staff. So we wanted to bridge the able body with the disabled. And so we would take different teams in, but we wanted to be consistent because we wanted them to know, to get to know the person's name, get to know a little bit about them so they'd see. And we started doing that four or five times a week. So basically our church became mobile. We would meet in wherever we could find space, a restaurant or whatever. But through the week, we were doing different things with different people for different reasons. Sometimes it would be over on the east side with Latinos. Other times it would be in the disabled community. And other times we'd be having a, a regular service. So it has become something quite unique. And you never know what we're going to be doing and how we're going to be doing it. But you know why we're doing it. And so the whys, before COVID hit, we had a building and we were meeting on a regular basis. And I wanted them to understand what happened if 100 people, African-American, found us and walked in. How would you respond if all of a sudden, out of nowhere, just boom, there's all these people who... You're not used to being around. Can you hang? And I wanted them to really be honest with themselves and answer that question because it had a lot to do with how they interpret everything else that it is we do. Most people said, that's challenging. I never really thought about that. You know, I just assumed if they showed up, they want to be doing what we're doing. And I said, well, you know, you, you have to give some consideration to the fact you don't go over to the other side of town and, and just partake. There's a reason people show up at different places. They have preferences and tastes. The goal here is to learn how to be appreciative of others' preferences and tastes and celebrate them and compliment them for having them. And so that's kind of been where we're at. We're trying to sew a lot of different seams through a lot of different people groups. And it's challenging, but it's so rewarding. That's amazing. That's really, really that the world has opened up to you now in terms of the publishing world to the point that I know they're, they're asking things in England. Take us through your three books. The first one I wrote to primarily to, to the church. I wanted them to get a window into my Hope Chapel experience. Part of the DNA of that church is, by definition, it was inclusive. It didn't have to ever advertise. It was inclusive before that word became fashionable. And it was just because it was on mission. So anybody who wanted to be, you, you knew real soon what the church was about. 
if that was important to you, you stayed. Didn't matter what you look like. So, you know, my, my class was a guy from Hawaii, uh, an Asian guy, myself. And, you know, that's just the way, that's, that's the way we roll. And so I, I wanted other people to have access to what I experienced. I had experienced things in the rock and roll world where I saw people uh, in the hippie movement come together, at least make an attempt to actually love each other and truly love each other. I had seen people at Hope Chapel come together and make a, an attempt to truly love each other and be unified around a, a single a single theme and yet still have space to be themselves. So I'd seen that and too. And I wanted people to have that access to that. So that's what Rhythm and Grace was about. I shared stories about uh, my rock and roll background, uh, church plant. The second one, though, was a result of what I just shared. I realized I had a deficiency. Uh, the way the book came about was I g had gone to Chicago to speak at a conference. And I'm in the lobby, and I see this big, tall guy walking with with a book that looks like my spine. It looks like the spine to a story of rhythm and grace. And the guy's name was Richard Twist. And he had been the native speaker at like Promise Keepers. And he, he was a big thing in the native Christian world. So I walked up to him. I go, where'd you get that book? That looks like mine. He go, oh. And so we meet. And then he goes, well, I'm a native guy. And I was at uh, Alcatraz and I was in Ain. Well, in Dr. John's band, one of the guys in Ain, he used to follow the band around. So we had this commonality. And so we went and through a weird series of events, we were supposed to fly out the same day and all the planes were canceled. So we wound up in the executive lobby and we started comparing notes about our lives. And I realized I knew very little about the Native community. Native American, I'm sorry, yes. Native American community. And I realized that I had spent time with Latinos, black and white. But I had never even thought about what was going on. And I thought that's something I'd better uh, investigate. So I started going. He invited me to come speak at his. He, he had a, a powwow in Portland. Years, and he invited us up. So we started going there for three or four years. And through that, I, I got connected to the Native community. So when Bridging, Bridging decided we're going to do that as well. So we thought what we should do is Austin is on a lot of Native land. So we started going around. And making friends with a lot of native people. And then we brought a powwow here. We brought a bunch of people from around the country and brought it out. And I saw that I made a mistake. I didn't prep to where people were. It was relational. They saw everybody dancing and they saw, and they didn't know any questions. When the time came for question and answer, they had. So premise of the art of God was that we wanted people to think about seeing the beauty in every human being that God had created. Uh, I had learned in the special needs community that I can see beauty in people's bodies who are contorted. I've learned to not walk into those areas and see them as a needy person. I see them as a beautiful creation of God and a friend. But it took time. It, it took a lot of time and it took a lot of going, just showing up and consistently showing up. It's not easy. There's no way to take a course on how to love somebody. You got to put in the time. But then as time moved on, you know, I still thought there's something missing that we're not addressing where we get our ethics, morals and ethics. And I thought, well, we're supposed to be getting them from the Ten Commandments, but it's not something we talk about any longer because they're such a part of our cultural foundation. 
there's no reason to talk. You know, you just once you learn to ride a bike, it's part of your. You can do that. But I thought, I'm gonna, let's try to back up and go through, go at them through a different angle. So I tried to infuse music and the Ten Commandments to talk about the, the prevalent issues, which is still racial, black and white racial tension in America has been and always will be the number one racial tension for one simple reason, because of slavery. Slavery is not just an institution of, of whether people worked or didn't work. It's an ontological issue. It's about the nature of being. Most of the assumptions we have about the other emanate and they, they originate from the posture of that juxtaposition between white and black and slave and all of the stereotypes and everything that come with it are, are as a result of that. So I thought, well, let's appeal to the Ten Commandments. Let's appeal and maybe that will be soften the blow to realize we're all equally guilty if there is guilt to be had. We're all equally responsible if there is a responsibility to get involved, but we're all capable of solving the problems individually and collectively if we're willing. So I tried to set up a way where I wasn't speaking at people or telling them what, but giving them things to think about and say, well, have I ever thought about that? Maybe, you know, maybe I'm a little bit like that and maybe I should change. So that's what love and the story of love and grace is about. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.